We're glad that you're here. We're glad that we, we have the opportunity to come and to study God's word tonight. And you probably expected me to break this chapter up anyway. 65 verses is a lot for me to cover in one setting, as you well know. So we're going to do 1 through 31. And I actually don't want to start Matthew 27. I want to start in Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, if you would grab a Bible or use your phone or however you prefer, we're going to turn and we're going to read some from there. Isaiah 53. This is probably the most well-known prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, and, and, and I believe that's for a good reason. It's amazing to think about Isaiah and the time that he lived, 750 approximate years before Jesus came to the earth, and to prophesy such intricate details about Jesus' suffering, about the purpose of his suffering. It's just amazing to see God's hand in this prophet's life pinning these words and telling us and telling Israel what was to come. And I don't want to necessarily do a complete breakdown of this chapter, but I do want to start and read through some of it. In Isaiah 53 and verse 3, speaking of Jesus here, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. As we look at the suffering of Jesus, Isaiah says that he was despised and rejected. The, the writer goes on to hear through the spirit of Christ which was in him says that he bore our griefs, that he carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. In verse five, I believe it is, he says, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. And we'll talk about that more in detail tonight as we get into the gospel. It says, Lord laid on, the Lord laid on him our iniquity. He became an offering for sin to justify many and to bear their iniquities. These are things that we typically read about in this chapter and we pull out, but there's something that jumped off the page that I wanna think about. And it's in verse 4, where it says, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know, I think in times past I had read this verse, and I, I thought it was, was Isaiah was saying that Christ was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he's talking about the perception of the people, that they esteemed him smitten of God, they esteemed him as being punished by God. And you know that actually makes sense with their view. You think about how many times that we, we, we studied it in this book, in fact, where they had this idea that if someone was suffering in life, that that was some punishment that was commensary to their sin that was, that was handed down by God. They just looked at life that way. If you're suffering, it's obvious that you or someone in your family has committed some sin. I think about John 9 and the blind man and those men thinking, I wonder who sinned. wonder who sinned to bring about this blind man. Uh, you think about the palsied man where the Pharisees looked at him and they said, well, well, it's because this man was a sinner from birth. And that's just the way that they looked at life. But, it, but I think it helps us understand the statement before it that Jesus was despised and he was rejected. And as we go through Matthew 27, I want to talk about some of the punishment that Jesus received for our sins, but I also want to notice his rejection. Because we often talk about his, his suffering, we talk about his agony, but I think we don't really consider the amount of rejection that Jesus also suffered in these moments in his life. 
In Matthew 27 and verse 1, picking up from Brother Aaron's study from last week where we saw Peter and his denial of Christ, the writer here picks up this story and says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And I want to think about that because in chapter 26, they'd already decided he deserved to die. You remember, they had this mock trial and they brought these false witnesses and you know they couldn't corroborate anything. None of their stories lined up, but Jesus finally tells them, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. And they said, blasphemer. And they said, we don't need witnesses anymore. You've heard what he said. What do you think? And they said, he's guilty. He deserves to die. They'd already decided he was going to die. Why are they plotting his death? I'll tell you why. Because they can't kill him. And they know that. They're coming up with some kind of scheme for Jesus to die because they can't do it. And so they come up with a plan. We're going to take him to the Romans. You know what? That was already decided. It was already decided. But that is exactly the type of political situation that they lived in. It was not lawful for them to put people to death. In verse 2, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Now there's details that are left out in Matthew's account that are drawn out in Luke and also in Mark. Because what actually happens is Jesus gets taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to Annas first, which is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. He's then taken from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, because Pilate finds out, oh, well, he's in Herod's jurisdiction. We'll let him deal with him. Well, Herod, he just wants Jesus to perform some magic trick for him. That's the way he looks at Jesus. And they eventually send him back to Pilate, and that's where Matthew really just picks up the story right there. He leaves out some of those details, but we end up seeing Jesus with Pontius Pilate. It says, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You know, there's been a lot of theories about this. There's been theories about Judas. One is, well, you know, the Bible says Judas repented. And because Judas repented, God must have forgiven him. And there's been whole books written about this theory. I want to ask you something about Judas. What do you think about Judas? Was this the greatest sin ever committed? A lot of people feel that way. And I think we have this infatuation with trying to figure out what's the greatest sin ever was it Peter's? Was it Judas's? Was it the chief priest? Was, you know, Jesus told Pilate, he that delivered you into my hands commits a greater sin than you do. So we've just been infatuated with that. But my question is, did Judas commit a sin that could not be forgiven? And I believe the answer is no. But it was the way that he responded to his sin that caused Jesus to say what he said about Judas. Notice that Judas, it says, was remorseful. He was remorseful. That's really different than he repented. He was remorseful. You know, people can be remorseful and not repent, and Judas certainly didn't repent. He just realized what he had done, saw he was condemned, and tried to go fix it. He took the money back to who? To the priests. He's trying to undo the physical thing. This isn't about him and God. This is about, okay, we're going to fix this. I'm going to go take the money back. And they said, hey, that's you, buddy. (laughs) 
We got nothing to do with that now. You, you already made your deal. You see to it. Here's what the Bible says about repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Now I rejoice. This is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What we see in Judas and Peter is two different men that committed essentially the same type of sin and that they both rejected Jesus and betrayed Jesus, but Peter goes back to Christ, whereas Judas goes and kills himself. What kind of sorrow is that? Well, it's not godly sorrow. He didn't sorrow in a godly manner. It didn't bring about change in his life. It brought about such a shame and sorrow that he went and hanged himself. He may have been remorseful. I want you to know that people that live their life as a drunk, they're sorry that they're a drunk. They really are. They're sorry they're a drunk. But they may pop another bottle tomorrow. And that's not the kind of sorrow that Peter's talking about when he says godly sorrow leads to repentance. He was sorrowful, but this is what Jesus said about Judas. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's a big statement. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Let's think about that for a moment, shall we? Let's say that someone lives their entire life in suffering. I mean, their life is terrible. They never enjoy this world, but they're saved and they die and they go to heaven. Would it have been good for that person never to have been born? No. Still a blessing that they were born. Why would Jesus say it was good for that man never to have been born? Because despite all of the pleasures that you could enjoy in life, when you're condemned by God, it's good for you not to have ever been born. And I want you to really think about that. Because it's not just Judas that Jesus could say it would have been better for that person never to have been born. Because if we reject Jesus Christ and we reject his grace and his salvation and we stand before God on the day of judgment without that blood and without that forgiveness, it will have been good for us if we had never been born. And that's a scary thing to think about. But that's exactly the situation Judas was in. He died in his sins. Something that's interesting to me about this is that as Jesus says this, Judas, it says, who was betraying him answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, this may seem like a real genuine question that Judas is asking out of curiosity, but if you back up in Matthew 26 to verse 19, Judas has already betrayed him. He's already gotten the 30 pieces of silver. He's already made this plan. So when he says, Rabbi, is it I? I don't think he's saying, am I the one that's betraying you? He's, he's feeling Jesus out to see, is he talking about me? And does, does he really know? Yeah, he knows. He knows exactly what you've done. That's one of the first people we see reject Jesus in this chapter. Matthew 27, verse 6, But the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful for the, to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought with them, a bought with them rather, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
I, I find this somewhat ironic that these men are actually worried about what's lawful to do with that money. You've just betrayed the Son of God. You know he's the Son of God, and you're worried about what's lawful to do with the 30 pieces of silver. It's pretty ridiculous when you think about it. But they, they're, they're, you know, they're purists, so they're not going to put that money in the treasury. So they make a decision, they talk amongst themselves, and they go out and basically buy a worthless piece of farming property. You could never farm on this because it was full of clay. That's why it was called the potter's field. But 30 pieces of silver is about 30 days' wages. So it's about a month's salary. It was enough to go buy a worthless piece of land to bury people in. And that land that they bought began to be connected with the fact that it was the price of blood. So they called it the field of blood. Verse 9, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Even the fact of the 30 pieces of silver was prophesied. Even the number was prophesied. Even the fact that they would buy the potter's field was prophesied. This wasn't events that were occurring without God's knowledge. It weren't events that were outside of his control. God knew every detail about what was going to happen as Jesus' crucifixion happened. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pilate again. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Well, I want you to think about this. This is the guy who's going to come and he's going to examine you and figure out if you're really saying that you're the king. And that's what they're accusing him of. I mean, that's, that's their card that they're trying to play with Pontius Pilate. He is trying to reject Rome's authority. That's the only card they've got with Pilate. Pilate doesn't care that he's broken their law. He does not care about that. He told them, you see to that. They said, well, you know, we can't. We can't do that. But he's telling people he's the king. So Pilate says, are you the king? If you're Jesus and you're trying to get out of this situation, what's the easiest thing to say? No, I'm not a king. What does Jesus say? Yeah, I am. I'm the king. And while he was being uh, accused by the chief priests and elders, it says of Jesus, he answered nothing. This goes back to Isaiah's prophecy. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You know, one of the most amazing things about the trial of Jesus, it must have been amazing to the people. Every single time someone brought an accusation against Jesus during his ministry, what did he do? He silenced them. They would come and they would try to find fault. They'd try to trap him. They'd try to condemn him. They'd bring up some little thing where they were trying to examine every jot and every tittle of the law to try to get Jesus trapped. And Jesus always put them in their place and made them look like they were uneducated. He could have done that here too. Every accusation against him was false and Jesus could have refuted it with wisdom, with the wisdom of God and silenced his accusers, but he chose not to. Why? He's accepted God's will. This isn't about him defending himself. He's accepted it. No, I'm not dying because of my guilt, but I'm going to go die, and I'm not going to defend myself. He remained silent through the entire trial, except in his conversation with Pilate. And that's interesting. And I believe because with Pilate, Jesus is just explaining things. He's not trying to defend himself. 
But he didn't defend himself, even though he conversed with Pilate. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? He's just shocked. Are you even going to defend yourself? But he answered him not a word. So the governor marveled greatly. That must have been a shock to him to see someone not defend themselves. Even common criminals that were guilty would cry out they're innocent. Somebody would come up with some explanation as to why they didn't deserve to be crucified. Surely Jesus knows You can understand why Pilate is shocked that Jesus won't say anything. In verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. Now I want you to know something. They weren't obligated to do this. Rome did this as an appeasement to the Jews. They've already infiltrated the, the nation of Israel and Israel hates it. And so they're doing this basically as a fake olive branch, if you will. They're just doing this because, oh, well, here's a good gesture. So they, at this time of year, would release one prisoner. So it was, he wasn't obligated to do this. <clears throat> and it says now at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. <clears throat> Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. I don't think it was a mistake that Pilate chose Barabbas to put up there with Jesus. First of all, Pilate doesn't want to condemn Jesus. He hasn't found any fault in him. And so he takes the most despicable character that you can imagine and puts him next to Jesus. Barabbas was a murderer. Surely they're not going, I'm giving them a choice out of two people. Surely they're going to choose Jesus. No. You ever looked at the name Barabbas? Was that his name? Barabbas? That's what they called him. You know, we've got several of these bar names in scripture. We've got Simon Bar Jonah. That wasn't his last name. It was Simon, son of Jonah. That's what the word bar means, son of. Barnabas, Paul's companion. Barnabas means son of consolation. That wasn't his actual name, but the name that was given him, son of consolation. This name literally means son of Abba, son of daddy, most likely an orphan. Maybe he's illegitimate. He could be anybody. I think that's the point. In a lot of ways, Barabbas is an analogy for you and I. A man who really deserved to go to the cross but was set free and instead Jesus took his punishment of death. Oh, I know we can look at Barabbas and say he's a despicable character. That's right. And we're no different. Jesus did not say, this this guy deserved, don't set this guy free. He kept his mouth shut. Why did Pilate do this? Because he knew this wasn't about justice. This is not about guilt. This is not about what a man deserves. They did this for envy's sake, and he knew it. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's Pilate, his wife said to him, have nothing to do with this man. Notice, have nothing to do with this just man. What's that word just mean? It means innocent. She said, I've suffered many things in a dream because of him this day. That frightened Pilate. You know, when they, when they told Pilate, and this is not in Matthew, but when they told Pilate, he has said he's the son of God. Pilate was, a, was afraid. He's really trying. 
I'm not saying he was a good man. I'm not saying Pilate was right in what he did. I'm telling you, Pilate is really trying to set Jesus free because he does not believe their claims against him. And now his wife says, don't you do anything to that guy. He is innocent. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. When Jesus came into the city, they lined the streets. They shouted Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people stood around and they listened to him teach and they watched him perform miracles and they followed Jesus and in one moment they are persuaded that he is nothing more than a criminal that deserves to die. That's pretty wishy-washy, isn't it? Why were the people so easily persuaded? Why did the people reject Jesus? The governor asks, which of the two do you want me to release to you? So they haven't released him yet. They said Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, that is a riot was ensuing. Now here's the thing about being the praetor, about being the, the, uh, the governor of a Roman province. When you come in and you take over a place, your main job is to make sure that things remain peaceful. And if you have to do that with violence, you do it. And that's how Rome operated. And when he sees things getting out of hand, he finally, he gives up. He realizes that I'm not going to convince him. And so he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude. Interestingly enough, that was not a Roman custom, it was a Jewish custom. It was the Jews who had that custom of washing their hands of a situation. He did that in their presence. Did that alleviate him from his guilt? No. But this is what's interesting. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. What did he believe? He really believed Jesus was innocent. You see to it. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Why would they say that? Why would you say that? Number one, they don't have the right to place guilt on their children. But why did they do that? Okay, <clears throat> you've heard of people using hyperbole to convince you that they're just completely convinced of a situation. That's all they're doing. They're saying, no, we are so convinced he needs to be crucified. You put his blood on us. We are sure that he's guilty. They're duped is what they are. They've been sold a bill of goods. I'll tell you, the blood did come on them. It did come on them. Because about 40 years later, Rome comes in by the providence of God and destroys the city and the sanctuary and people died. Be careful what you wish for. I don't, I'm not saying everybody. A lot of these people that were there that day also were there that day when Peter preached the gospel and they were forgiven and saved. But a lot of these people, their rejection of Christ became permanent. and They lived the rest of their life that way. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So there's a couple of different words that are used in scripture to talk about chastisement. One of those is the word scourged here. 
And the other one is the word stripes, where Paul talked about receiving stripes. And, and throughout Jewish history, um, they were very careful not to give more than the law allowed. And the law would allow somebody who was being punished for a crime to receive 40 stripes, no more. They could receive less, but no more. It was up to the judge's judgment. So if he placed a sentence of 40 stripes, they came up with a way to make sure they didn't go over 40. So they would take a whip and they would have three different uh, strands on that whip and they give you 13 strikes with a three uh, leaded whip. That way you get 39 stripes, which is why 39. And so they were very careful, but scourging was different. Number one, it wasn't guided by God's law. Scourging was something that the Romans came up with. And I just want to revisit some of the punishment Jesus has already been to as we think about what Isaiah said, that he was bruised and that he was wounded for our transgressions. Back in verse 26, they've already pronounced Jesus is guilty. And they spit in his face and they punched him. The Bible says they buffeted him and that literally means to be struck with the fist. That's what the Greek word means. They also slapped him and they mocked him. You ever been spit on? You ever had somebody spit in your face? I'll tell you, it's terrible. It's humiliating. That's one of the greatest insults that someone, I mean, that, that is almost, that is worse than terrible words for somebody to look at you and spit in your face as a sign of disgust. The men who spit on Jesus, spit in his face, didn't realize it. They were spitting in the face of the very one that gave them life. Every blessing that they ever enjoyed in life, they just spit in the face of the giver. And what did Jesus do? Nothing. He did nothing. And then we have this verse that says, and when he had scourged Jesus. That's it, one word, scourged. So I want to appeal to history just a little bit and talk about the process of scourging in this time. And it didn't start out the way that it was when Jesus came to the earth. The Romans had evolved, if you will, in their art of torture. Uh, crucifixion actually started out in a different way. They used to just literally hang someone from a tree until they just died from exposure. And then they started hanging their hands above their head, and then they realized they could make someone suffocate to death, and so they came up with the, the more modern uh, crucifixion, at least modern contemporary in that day, of putting the arms out here and putting the feet on a, uh, a post, which is called a stipe. So, uh, so a lot of this evolved, but they were experts in the art of torture. And what would happen was they would strip all of the clothes off of the body. That's accurate to history, and I'll tell you, that in of itself would be completely embarrassing and humiliating. And they would tie their hands above their head, uh, they would strap them with leather straps, and their body would hang, uh, so they, they couldn't really flail around much, they, they were just, their weight, they're just dead weight hanging from their hands. And what you see here is what's called a flagrum, and it has a wooden handle, and then it has several strands, usually they had nine strands, this is just a, a visual here. It doesn't have a wooden handle, but just to give you an idea, what they would do was they would put pieces of iron and sometimes pieces of lead, or they would sharpen pieces of bone, and they would braid them inside of the flagrum, uh, and it was designed to have weight to it. That way, when they swung, it would actually penetrate the skin. Rather than just giving them whelps, 
It was actually cutting and tearing their flesh from their body. Now, how brutal was it? I don't know how brutal the death of uh, the, the beating of Jesus was. I can't give you a medical uh, term, but we're going to look at some scripture to give us an idea of what this would have been like. This over on the right side, that may look confusing in the picture, but what this is is an overhead view, and that's probably really small back there for Caleb. But these are, this is an overhead view of what it would look like. They would have two people that would administer this, and these men were called lictors. This was their niche. It's what they did. They were experts in torture. They would go stripe, 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 stripe. Sometimes they would start at the top of the back and work all the way down to the sole of the feet or the back of the ankles where your Achilles is. It wasn't just the back a lot of times. A lot of people died, and that was their only restriction when they were scourging these men. They wouldn't say give them 40 stripes. They could give however many stripes that they decided to. Although they were charged, don't kill them, but a lot of people died, and then usually the Roman government or the pontiff would just say, okay, well, you know, get rid of the body. This was a preparation for scourging, uh, for crucifixion. But Pilate is hoping that this scourging will be enough. Jesus did not die from the scourging, but how bad was it? It was bad enough that he was so exhausted he couldn't carry a crossbeam. And, and history portrays, they didn't carry the whole cross. They didn't have an entire cross. They just carried the part they were gonna be hung, their hands were going to be hung from. It weighed about 80 to 120 pounds. Now, that's probably pretty heavy to carry up a hill. But Simon of Cyrene that they compelled to carry it didn't have any trouble carrying it. Jesus did. He was, he was exhausted. He was tortured. He was beaten. But the scriptures gives us an idea about what this must have been like. But I want to think about what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 when he says this, by his stripes you are healed. You know what doesn't bring about healing naturally? Wounds. Wounds don't bring about healing. Now, you know, I guess in some cases where somebody has an infection, you could lance it and it would bring about healing, but you, you get the point. Pain and suffering and affliction don't typically bring about healing, but he says you're healed through the wounds of Jesus. Why was it that at this time, Jesus died at this time through this means? I'll tell you why. Because he was smitten of God and afflicted in the fact that Jesus was chosen by God to take this specific punishment. He wasn't rejected by God like they thought. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, the mocking just keeps going. They, these men, Jesus has just been beaten half to death, and they bring him in there, and it says that the whole garrison, and I was looking at what that meant, that usually meant one-tenth of a legion. And a legion can be 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So think about hundreds of soldiers coming in and mocking Jesus as he has this crown that is made of thorns that they drove into his head with the stick that they gave him for a scepter. They spat on him and they took the reed and struck him 
on the head and they drove those thorns into Jesus' head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. That's gonna end our study of chapter 27, but I want to go into Isaiah for a moment and also into John and look at some further details that we get. So John says in John 19, 1, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again, said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no fault in him. Okay, he's back on board. We're gonna get this guy cleared. He's gonna bring him back out and let him look at him one more time. Why? Because he's done. He's, he, all right, I've scourged him. That's enough. I want you to know I find no fault in him. I, it, the, the punishment's sufficient. But it wasn't. Then Jesus came out. Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Look at him. That's what he said. Here he is. Look at him. What do you think they saw? You think they saw a Messiah? Do you think they saw a king you think they saw something that they desired? Let's look at what Isaiah says in chapter 52. And I want us to recognize something here. Chapter 52 and chapter 53, when they were written, they weren't written as chapter 52 and chapter 53. The flow of thought starts in chapter 52 and just continues on through 53. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 and if you back up and want to get the context, it's in verse 13. He's talking about the Messiah to come. He says, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So there's two words here, visage and form. The word visage means his face, his appearance. And the word form literally means his bodily form. And he says it was marred. What's that word mean, marred? If you look up the Hebrew word, it literally means disfigured. They were astonished when they looked at Jesus. Why? Why were they so astonished? Because it looked terrible. It looked terrible. Continuing on from Isaiah 52 into, into chapter 53, we pick up verses 2 and 3. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected. I want you to think about this. So we look at this verse and we say, oh, well, as Jesus was growing up before God, he grew up and he did not look handsome. He, his, he, he wasn't good looking. But that word grow up is, is really a, kind of a poor translation. That word actually means to, be, to rise up like a plant, to spring forth out of the ground. It's not talking about him growing up. But I want you to notice the connection between our words here. His form, he says, was disfigured and they were astonished. What's he say over here? He hath no form or comeliness and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected a man of sorrows. 
when Pilate looked over and he said, behold the man, I'll tell you what they saw. They saw no beauty. No beauty. No comeliness. Nothing kingly. Nothing messianic. They saw a man who wouldn't fight. They saw a man who was defeated. And there was nothing about his appearance that made them go, you know what? We changed our mind. We want him back. They said, crucify him. So I want to ask you tonight, when you look at Jesus and his suffering, do you see any beauty, any comeliness, anything desirable? You know, the world sees the cross of Jesus and the Bible says that it's foolishness to them. I suppose that's probably true. Most people think of a savior as someone who comes in and defeats all the enemies and destroys them. That's what Israel thought Jesus was there to do. He was not. He was there to take their pain and heal them. He was there to take their sins in his own body and suffer so that they could have salvation. Friends, I hope that we never forget the punishment that Jesus went through for us, the pain and the agony, because at any moment, he could have pulled the plug. He could have stopped it. And the only reason Jesus went through the torture is because he had me and you in mind as he was going through it, knowing I just got to get through this. I just got to keep going. I just got to keep enduring because the world will be lost without it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're lost and you've rejected Jesus all of your life. Well, it's time to accept him and to come to him as your king, as your savior and let him cleanse and heal you through his own suffering. You know, we could be just like Judas. We could reject Jesus and we can go and it will have been better for us that we'd never been born or we can come to Jesus just like Peter did and we can receive healing and forgiveness and acceptance and love and ultimately eternal life.